Carey and her epic, heartbreaking World War I story, The Girl from Paris, kick off the show this week, taking us from war-torn Paris of the First World War to the fabulous fashion scene of 1920s New York. Seamstress Vianne believes she's lost her sister in the war. She sees the rubble surrounding her and has the evidence of her own eyes. But when she gets to New York, she's forced to face a new reality. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading today, Ella talks about the remarkable couturier scene in 1920s New York, her Daughters of New York series and her lifelong passion for all things French. We've got another free giveaway, as you know we do this every week. This week it's the Chocolate Mystery Magic Box series, Seven Cozy Mysteries by author Olivia Swift. Create your own magical moment, grab a coffee and some chocolate while you dive into Seven Cozy Mysteries. The links for how you access those books can be found on the show notes for this episode at thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget, you can get exclusive bonus content like hearing Alice answers to the five quick fire questions by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter for the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month. We've got a new feature starting on Patreon this month, Encore, a monthly chat with authors who've already been on the show talking about their latest exciting release. It's shorter than a normal episode, 15 to 20 minutes, and first up in the second week of June is popular international author Jill Paul talking about The Collector's Daughter, her new dual timeline novel about the English aristocrat Lady Eve Herbert. Famous not only because she was born and grew up in Highclere, the manor house that features in Downton Abbey, but she was also part of the first ever global media sensation, the uncovering of Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt in the 1920s. As usual, the links to everything that we've talked about in this show can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. But that's enough of the housekeeping. Here's Ella. Hello there, Ella, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Jenny, for having me today. It's lovely to be here and to see you from where you are in New Zealand and me here in Melbourne. Yes, it's wonderful. Now, from Melbourne, you're writing these international and Amazon charts bestsellers, women's fiction stories set in Europe, mainly World War One and World War Two. Now, you had one real bestseller, Lost in Berlin. You've had more than a couple of books, but Lost in Berlin really started to make a name for you. And now this year, you've got just published The Girl from Paris, and that's the one we're going to be spending a bit of time on today. World War II Paris and post-war years in New York, and it's a romance and a family mystery all rolled into one. Give us an idea of where you started your career in fiction and where have you got to now, do you think? So I think, look, I've always had this kind of love and fascination with creativity, you know, since I was a little girl. And it really started off with music. 
you know, I remember watching this this show on television, and this this gives away my age, but Jane Peters was this very famous violinist, and I was fascinated with her passion for playing the violin. I distinctly remember her youngest um, sister saying she wanted to play the piano. So I, as a little girl, I must have been seven or eight, I basically, you know, pigeonholed my parents and said, I want to play the piano. And they were like, no, no, I was the youngest of four. No, no, everybody else has tried that, forget it. But I pushed, it sort of persisted and they have borrowed this old piano with yellowing keys, but I pushed through. So it started off with music and I ended up doing a music degree at the Conservatorium in Adelaide. But when I was there, I also... Um, did an arts degree. So I was studying English lit and I'd always read. I loved reading. I always had this kind of overactive imagination or make up, you know, lots of stories as a little girl. But it was then at uni, so, you know, late teens, early 20s, that I fell in love with the whole world, I think, of writing and authors and books. And I had an amazing English lecturer who one year just said, look, go and sit at the Adelaide Writers' Festival for the week. Just don't come to uni, go. And, and I did. I, so I sat there and I just, I, I thought this is what I want to do. And I was writing while I was at uni, I was writing poetry. I was, you know, as you do, you know, I was sort of kind of charting that kind of, you know, the emotional stuff you go through while you're at uni and all the rubbish and I ended up throwing those away. But then right through my 20s, while I was teaching and I was, and, and in my 30s, I was raising children and teaching, I was writing. So I had these exercise books, you know, if we had authors coming to visit and I was teaching at school, I would say, look at this, you know, and then bought a laptop and started writing more seriously and was constantly going to conferences, started educating myself and worked with mentors. I worked with manuscript appraisal agencies in the UK and for some reason went through the UK because I'd read so many kind of UK-based books, but also had a, quite a community here in Australia. And eventually I got to the point, I thought, you know, I'm just, I've heard about this, this abandoned apartment in Paris and I've been writing a book, a novel set in Adelaide around a, you know, it had a mystery with painting and, and the past, and it, but I, I was sick of it and I thought I just, I'd, I need something fresh. And I learned about, read about this apartment in Paris that had been abandoned and this woman on the eve of the Nazi invasion of Paris just fled and she never went back. And in 2010 died and her family realised she'd owned this apartment um, that was completely preserved but all full of artefacts from the 1890s. So then they sort of were able to trace this back to it belonging to their great-grandmother and that she was this famous courtesan in uh, France during the Belle Epoque. And I just thought, why did she, why did she abandon? What, what would make you go? So I wrote Paris Time Capsule and I, while I'd written various other novels, I hadn't done anything with them. They'd gone out to mentors. I had had encouragement Though, actually, it's not true. I had sent one to a publisher and she said, look, you'll get there. Keep writing. Just work a little bit more on X, Y and Z. And so I'd had a lot of encouragement, which was really important, I think, you know, for aspiring writers, you need that. And so when I wrote Paris Time Capsule, I'd hold away on, on my own. I thought, no, I just want to, I suppose, you know, you could say you found your thing, you know, your voice or whatever it was. And then I decided to put that, the publishing landscape was really changing. It was back in 2014. So I thought, you know, and I'd read about these writers just 
indie self-publishing their books and I thought look I want what would be really great would be to get some reader feedback if I get 15 people to read this thing and tell me if it's any good that would be helpful so I put it on I self-published it and had a little cover designed and just put it out there to trying to get feedback but it went to number 10 in the US it was ridiculous I was living in Hobart at the time I thought what are all these people doing so in, in the whole Kindle store and then the reviews started coming in and in and then I started getting approached by publishers because back then they were so in the US and so the book was picked up by a big publisher in the US and what they did was edited it, designed a new cover and then it sold really well and then six novels published with that publisher and quite several foreign rights editions and now I'm with a British publisher, an imprint of Hachette and who are absolutely fantastic and the foreign rights editions are really rolling along. So it's yeah, I guess it was a slightly different path and I was probably looking at what was happening at the time and it was just a matter of synergy, but that that passion has always been there for something creative, you know, it, it, whether it was music then, you know, now it's writing. Yes. Um, now, that's an amazing story. You do get a little bit of a hint of that on your website, which is why I asked the question, because although you don't go into all the details, there is a sense there that you've probably had quite a long apprenticeship for this overnight success. People might look at you and think, oh, wow, where did she come from? But actually, you've been working at it a long time, haven't you? It was. And it, literally during those years, I was studying the craft and practicing writing. I was Really, I, I think the piano practice helped, to be honest, the discipline of sitting down and doing something on my, you know, and so I wrote a thousand words every day when yes. I was working and I had the, the children were little, I was just there, that was my thing and I needed that time, I always have. Yeah, it probably did help. Now, just looking to Paris Time Capsule for a moment, because a bit further on, I did plan to ask you about how much you depended on real life stories for some of your plot lines. Was that story about the abandoned apartment, was that a true story? Did that actually happen? Absolutely. Yes, oh. it did. So this apartment, it was the photos of this apartment were all over the internet back in 2010, it was discovered. Um, wow. That this woman had, so she died in the south of France, sort of in her 80s or 90s, and her family didn't realise that she'd actually abandoned this apartment in 1940 in June um, on the eve of the Nazi invasion, as everybody did, you know, they left Paris. And when they went in to open this apartment up, they discovered that it wasn't, you know, while it had been lived in the 1930s and into 1940, the decor and all the artefacts in it were this amazing treasure trove. Of, of stuff from the Belle Epoque and, you know, there was this stuffed emu, there were all these shawls and, you know, beautiful clothes and on the wall there was a portrait of this absolutely beautiful woman and they had art, an art expert in who said that's by Giovanni Baldini who was one of the leading portrait painters during the Belle Epoque but he was very much painted women and he painted this portrait they discovered was of Martha de Florian, who was a very famous Belle Epoque courtesan. And she was, you know, they were very much on the fringes of society, these courtesans. They were, and, and they have been recognised by historians as the first women who earned their own living, but look how they had to do it. Yeah. And so she had these sort of affairs. She was a seamstress and had absolutely no money and was discovered and then, you know, had these affairs with European royalty and they gave her these, showered her with gifts. And so the apartment was full of these. But my what really burnt with me was why 
did her granddaughter in 1940 abandon that apartment and yes. never go back? What would and what? And it was just left. It was preserved. And the electricity bills had been paid. So, yes, it was true. So that inspired, and I knew I wanted, for some reason, I wanted to write three novels about it. So there was Paris Time Capsule, which was, and they're complete fiction, my books, but but just inspired by this story. And then The House by the Lake and From a Paris Balcony, those first three novels were all inspired by that story. So that, yeah, it, it... I think finding those sorts of things and then where there's a mystery and you love history, it was just synergy, it just catnip, it came together. Let me just ask you about those electricity bills. So did the granddaughter who died in her 80s or 90s, did she continue to pay the electricity bills? Was it her that did that, do you know? I think so, yes. So she knew about it but she didn't ever speak about it to the family? No, exactly. Mm. That was the story at the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, The Girl from Paris, which is your most recent one, gives a wonderful picture of the high fashion world of New York in the post, the second, the, sorry, the First World War, isn't it? It's in the 20s. So um, you've got this Parisienne, Vianne. She's escaped from the horrors of war because partly the reason is that her mother and sister were both killed in a very tragic church bombing right towards the end of the war when they were hoping they were all going to be surviving. So she fled Paris to make a new life for herself in America. And you've got a lot of the stories based around the fashion industry in New York in the 40s, the late 40s. Um, How did you get the research for all the detail about those dresses? Really, you know, very, very explicit detail. You can really picture what they're, they're wearing and what they're creating. I'm so pleased to hear that. That's good. I'm glad they worked. I've had um, several readers contact me and say, where, you know, I want photos of these dresses. And they were all inspired by real garments. So what I did, that research, I went to New York. So this is the third book in in a New York series. And so I went to New York was in 2019 so it was right before the pandemic and I was actually lucky to be able to spend quite some time there researching the first book A New York Secret so because this was a series I was able to draw on a lot of that for location research in New York but in terms of the fashion I've long had I love fashion I mean I've really long had a a love of beautiful clothes and and complete admiration for the creativity I think that goes into that and so what I did was I bought books because I was in the pandemic. I was at home in Melbourne. So I literally, they're all on my desk. So I used books from museums that had actually, like the Met, who'd had collections of 1920s dresses and Victorian Albert. I also looked at books on New York in the 1920s and the Jazz Age because obviously that was, you know, quite a big thing. And then I had a really interesting book on fashion during the First World War and in Paris and in France. I also looked at, I mean, I'm, I really do find YouTube, you know, videos that are from the time. I, I've, you can get immense detail. But in these books, it was just so lovely because I was in the pandemic, you know, and, I, and of course, we all know Melbourne, we were in lockdown right through. 2021 as well I just escaped and I had this you know my setup these books and and it was just translating that detail into words and then reading about the effort that went into these dresses so what really fascinated me with the 1920s was the flapper dress was all designed in a you know they were one shape they were a tubular dress and the whole concept was 
really around freedom for women. So they come out of the uh, Spanish flu pandemic, you know, come out of World War One, and this there was this whole idea that you know you had the modern women that woman that it was very fashionable to get out there. You, they were going to jazz clubs, they were working, they were free, of course. It's but what was really fascinating about the the dresses was the detail in the embellishments. So it was the beading and the embroidery that took hours that was exquisite. And I just, so so looking at the sort of intricacy of that and the dress that one of the, the perhaps most important dresses in the book is the dress that Vian designs for Adriana Conti for the opening of her son's restaurant in New York. And that was just this stunning black and white dress. And it was all braided. And then it had this beautiful diaphanous kind of cloak with layers of chenille. And I um, sort of trim it with, yeah, so, and there were just so many. I, I, would, you'd, I mean, I've got the books here, but, you know, I just look at these pictures and kind of gasp at the beauty. They were gorgeous. So it was fun. I mean, it was really fun research, but it was also very beautiful research and a huge amount of respect for the the work that went into yes, those pieces. Yes, And the Adriana Conti dress is that, still extant I mean is it, is it in a museum somewhere yes so that was now that was exhibited at the Victoria and Albert ah, and yeah. I think it might actually be part of their collection so yes. that yeah because actually I was talking to my editor about that and she said you can go in and they will get things out and show you you know if you write to them so some of those dresses would there was a big exhibition of 1920s fashion and that book was really fantastic. And then there was another one I had from the Met. And then I also researched, you know, designers and read a lot about the individual designers and the women who really, I mean, it was women, which is which was really great. They yes. were really keeping that industry going mm. Um, mm. in France mm. throughout World War One because it was such an important industry. So, yes, that dress, it absolutely is still in existence and it had been exhibited. Fantastic. One of the other things, and flicking back a bit to talking about how you link into real life, I did wonder about one of the subplots in that story where this woman steals one of the other designer's clothes, steals couture garments really, and makes them for supermarket store, I mean, department stores very quickly. So she makes a cheap, cheaper sort of rip-off version, but doesn't doesn't accredit the original designer. So she's taking all the credit for the designs. I suspect that also was a true thing that was happening at the time, was it? Absolutely. And yeah. that was, oh, it was cute. It was really interesting, actually, because in France, particularly what was happening is they were the they they had magazines so they had magazines where they would actually show dresses and garments and designs and the specifications and have a little article about them. what other countries were doing was they were taking those articles from magazines and just claiming them as their own because uh, there was a lot of competition Paris was the center of fashion but this happened even before World War one Germany wanted to be the center of fashion so they take these dresses and then they'd be copied and made but absolutely and I think what the other interesting aspect of it with that research was that you had where women used to go to a dressmaker, they would go to a haberdasher, you know, a drapery, and they would choose their fabric and they'd go to a dressmaker and have something made up for themselves. You had the emergence of mass market department stores sort of in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and there were fashion parades in the stores. And they had, back in the day, the garments were all being made in America, in New York. So these seamstresses were sweating on the top floors of these, you know, in very 
the hardened conditions making these clothes in America. And um, they were copying, blatantly copying, you know, French designers and also designers and just putting them out for the mass market. And look, it's a problem with anything, with creativity and just not acknowledging it. So that was starting up. But the other third part of that with Eloise, I wanted to give her, I wanted to make her a real character and a real person with real conflicts and a, and a very much a personal life of her own and a story and how did she get to become this very, you know, successful Upper East Side couturier and really through her own hard work and then her personal journey and looking at how devastating that would be for an individual to have your to have this blatantly taken by the mass market because they could and then how she overcame that. And it was really interesting doing the research, looking at the French fashion industry and the way they were so copied and they the the sort of outcome of it all was you've got to you've got to be better you've got to actually just outshine this and you can't you know you can sue you can do all that sort of whatever and get into wrangles but at the end of the day they're copying it's copying and it was sort of like copying is stealing and so you have to somehow so it was part it was really interesting I thought it just came to me. I thought I wanted to make her, I didn't want her to be superficial and, you know, that sort of cliched, you know, fashioned. I, I, was, I, I really came to admire, you know, this industry hugely for the hard yes. work. Yes. And very much but women working in it. Yes, and just to clarify for people who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, Eloise is the woman that Vian manages to secure a job with and in the end sort of build her own New York career. So it very much revolves around their relationship as well as some other people. We're taking a short break. We'll be back with Ella very soon. Sadie's Vow, A Historical Mystery with a Heart of Romance is Jenny Wheeler's latest book, the first in a new California trilogy. It launches June 10, is on pre-order at a special launch price of $1.99 at all ebook stores now. That's $1.99 US dollar, so a little bit more in New Zealand currency. Newly minted Austrian Count Dolphy Westerhoven and a mysterious woman he meets on a train are drawn into a deadly conflict with San Francisco gangs. Pre-order it today at Amazon or my website, jennywheeler.biz. And now we're back with Ella Carey. You've mentioned a lot of these books we've talked about have been set in France and you mention on your website that you've been an absolute passionate Francophile almost from childhood. How did that come about? Yeah, I think, well, the school I went to, uh, our principal was very, French was her thing. So we grew up with having French breakfast with croissants and singing French songs and learning French. And I don't think when I was five, you know, I was really little that I really connected, I mean, you know, maybe with France or what it was, but I kept going with French and then obviously love history. So when I was studying history in year 12, we were kind of doing really looking at the French Revolution and French history. So it did, it was, it was kind of a second thing growing up and I always had a fascination. Again, it's that same thing. It's the fascination with this this beauty and elegance and design and the culture and the food. And at the end of year 12, I was lucky enough, I went to Europe the very first time and I just remember, I will never forget landing in Paris and that first 
drive through Paris and seeing the Arc de Triomphe all lit up. And there I was. And then as an adult, I went back to the Alliance Francaise and picked up when my my children were little and I, you know, you just, I needed something <laughs> for myself. And so I went back and studied French and that became a whole lovely thing again, you know, just that escape. And so, yes, it has always been. I've travelled around France a lot. So it, it has been from a very young age. There's so much poignancy in history and yeah, it's it's the culture and, and the and the difference in the country. There are so many different areas and you can travel and the architecture is completely different in one place. So it's a gorgeous country. Yeah, it's... Tell me, how then have you been affected by the pandemic? Because obviously travel is curtailed and still is a little curtailed, although it may be opening up by, by the time, this time later next year perhaps. But how are you faring with that? And have you got anything yeah. on the boil which has been a bit um, blocked by the fact that you can't travel? Oh, look, absolutely, because I'm in a kind of strange situation. I'm sitting here in Melbourne writing, but my job is overseas. It's in London. So I'm constantly every day emailing or talking to my editors, my agent there, and they want me to come over. They're like, you come over and there is actually, you know, a seminar I'd really like to go to. And I've got other colleagues with other writers in my publishing house. I'd love to just go and meet. You know, we chat every day on Facebook, whatever, we've got a group. So it is kind of, I mean, it's good for a writer in some ways to have that solitude and that alone time, but I think you also do need the connectivity and because my career is over there, yes, it has been, it is a little difficult. And I was going to try and go soon in May, but then Omicron's happened. And I would have liked to have gone last year as well. Because I think when, I mean, when I was working out of the US, I would go and my editor, I went to New York to research a New York secret. My editor was based in Seattle, but she flew all the way to New York to meet me. And there's something about sitting down and having a chat that is very different, you know, that personal. Yes. So I, I think what I'll try and do is go twice a year when this is over and just be able to get there. And it's also doing the research. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Mm. Look, turning away from the specific books to looking at your wider career, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. If there was one thing that you see as the secret of your career, end quote, in, in your working career, either in publishing or outside of publishing, what would it be? Oh, persistence, I think. Yeah. I think it's yeah. that it's just don't give up. You know, it's a very tough industry to get into, but so many industries are tough. So it's self-belief. It's having the belief in yourself and knowing, well, hang on, I've got by in the past, I'll get through this and I'll keep going. So it's persisting in the face of change and adapting. Yes. It's just so important, I think, yes. uh, yeah. for any, and that's, I think, the one thing that I'm I'm proud of. And then things have come together, you know, and so it's just that dedication, that persistence and belief in yourself. Yeah. So when you started out with your writing, what was your main goal at the beginning? And have you long ago surpassed that goal? I think the main goal was to get published and to work in this industry. I think it goes back to that sitting at that Writers' Festival in Adelaide and thinking, I just love this. I want to be a part of this, the conversations, the dialogue, the stories. I love stories, the characters. So I really wanted to get published. I think I always had a very innate, deep down, wanting to have to be a career author and to really be writing full-time as a, as a writer, not necessarily out of admiration for other people who were doing that because I love doing it and because I can't not write. And so to me, you know, there's that old saying, if you can do what you love, you know, it's not work. 
Yes. It's just not work. I'll, I'll happily write seven days a week. You've got to pull me away. For, and in fact, a day where I don't get to write is a bad day. You know, I measure myself. Oh, I've got this, you know, an interruption. I've got to go to the dentist or something. It's like, oh, it's so to me, I think that it was very intrinsic love of doing this. And so it was really an aim to get published. Have I surpassed it? Oh, oh definitely. Yeah, no, I didn't ever think this would happen. It just came about. It's just been one step. It's step by step. You know, this happens, then this happens and you're in the middle of it. And sometimes, you know, life's going on outside of it as it does. And you sit there and you think, well, this is great. I've got this for me. No matter what else is happening, you know, outside, I've got that little thing for me, which is really fantastic. So yes, it's definitely surpassed. I'm very devoted, but very grateful yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So do you have a particular writing routine? Do you set outside certain hours? Yeah, I do. I mean, I work, it's funny, I work very regularly um, every day during the week. So I my best writing time is in the morning. So if I can get a really good stretch in, I'll do that. And then I'll usually, I've got two little dogs, so they do need to be walked. So I do a lot of walking with them and swimming. I do a lot of Pilates. But really during the week, it, it just, it's the writing chunks and then kind of, you know, taking care of my, just exercising as well. But when I'm actually under deadline, so for example, I've just delivered book 10 on Friday. I worked every day from Christmas. I just knew I had to go seven days a week and I was pushing myself and by Friday last week, I literally, I was just, <laughs> so that's, that, that's too much. But I, yeah, I, I do have a routine. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I, it's it's a job, so I very much treat it like a job. Yes, and I have a word count, so I'll work to word count. So I I make sure, and I I write it all down that I've got I've hit that word count for the day, and then sometimes I I will stop at three o'clock, and I think right that's enough, and it's it's not starting to it's I'm starting to write rubbish, and I'm just looking, I can tell that no, this is not no good, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. That's lovely. Now, turning to Ella as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, we like to ask about your recommendations for other books and all, and particularly popular fiction books that people might like to read for their entertainment or comfort or escape, and sometimes series as well. It's interesting that you have written a number of trilogies, it sounds like, that, yeah, they fit together. What are you reading at the moment? What are some of your favourites from the past? What would you like to recommend to others? So at the moment I'm reading a book uh, called The Maid by Nita Prose, which is really, it's really kind of storming away in the, in the um, charts all over the world and it's a, a debut novel and it's about a maid working in America and she discovers a dead body in, in this grand hotel. But she's quirky. She's, she's definitely kind of on the spectrum, you know. She's, so she's a really interesting character. So that's great. I'm really enjoying that. I did enjoy the Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. Again, that was that was gorgeous. That was a group of people in an in an elderly kind of retirement home, and and they were trying to solve a murder, and that that was fun. I enjoy. I love Reese Bowen and Fiona Valpy's books, who are fellow authors that I, you know, that, that I really, really enjoyed their historical fiction. Long-term favourites, one of the writers, I, I really love Alexander McCall Smith, you know. Oh, yes. Um, I love his Edinburgh series, anything he writes. And the number one ladies detective agency, I really enjoy. That's a long-term favourite. I also love the classics. So Rebecca's probably by Daphne du Maurier is probably the book, That Twist. I remember reading that as a teenager. I that just and I will go back and read Rebecca and I loved her. Anything Cornwall, you know, set I love those sort of 
her books and then the classics and then Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. But at the moment, I'll tend towards exactly as you say, it's comfort reading. It's at night. I've been writing all day. So I'm probably gravitating towards things that are entertaining, not if I'm on a break, you know, if I'm having a week off or something, I'll go for something darker and bigger and more emotive. But I just love something I can, you know, good mystery or something I can just read through at yes. night. And this the maid's very good. Yes, that's great. Actually, you mentioned Reese Bowen and Fiona Valpy. I see that some of your books have been compared to them as being if they love those books, they'll love your books too. And I'd just like to mention that we've had both of them on the show. In fact, we've had Reese on twice. Oh, oh, really? um, and Fiona has been incre- incredibly popular. She was one of the ones that came out top 10 of the year and that kind of thing. So, yeah, they're both very much people that our listeners like to, to hear about, I think. So, yeah, that's great. Look, looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? Well, probably going back, I think what I did do when I started writing, I thought, no, I've done an English degree. I know what I'm doing going to write a book. And then I decided, I think I probably wrote two novels, you know, typed them just and didn't do anything with them. And then I thought, no, I'm going to really start studying the craft. And I think perhaps looking back, but maybe it was good. Maybe it was a good way to do it because I sort of got that out of my system. But looking back, I would say to aspiring writers, there is a real craft. And I think this kind of idea of studying it and having that apprenticeship and then finding your own, because really what what publishers are looking for is you, is your voice, your what what can you bring? And I think it's a very good thing to really go back and and analyse what's gone before and what might work for you and what might not and and to really study that craft and there are so many fantastic courses you can do in books on writing I haven't done a master's in creative writing it was all very much reading books on writing practicing the craft myself but a lot of a lot of writers are doing that these days and back when I was at uni you couldn't there wasn't you couldn't study creative writing so that's all exploded so I think studying craft. It's quite important to decide where you want to pitch yourself, isn't it, as well? Because yeah. some of the things that you might be recommended to do with a more literary book aren't going to work with the popular fiction or even women's fiction category. No, absolutely not. And I think that, you know, it's interesting you say that because when I did my degree and, you know, we were, we were studying these fantastic literary novels, I came out of it and binge read for three yeah. years I just thought no I just can't. so I went and read you know more commercial fiction and and then you've got to find where you want to write yes. and what your and and for me you know the the issue I have is this is my career this is I need to make money so it is a it is a financial thing but what was said to me early on when I was starting to work with mentors and had a manuscript appraisal agencies was you do need to find where you are. And they said, you're bang in the middle. I do love the idea of literary novels and that that whole depth. And I hope that in my novels, there is there is some form of depth and, and that people come out of it thinking something. But I also, I love a cracking good story. I want to be entertained. I love great characters. And that's the passion for me. So yes. yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think it's it, you've got to look at it as a spectrum, as a writer, and where do I want to sit? And, and it can be somewhere along 
between, you know, kind of commercial and literary. Interesting that you sat right in the middle. That's probably a very good place to be for what we wanted to do, yes. But what is next for Ella, the author, in terms of the next 12 months? What, you say you've just finished a book. Can you tell us anything about that one, for example? Yeah, so I've got another three books coming out in the next, uh, between, so this book that I've just finished and I'm about to edit is coming out on July the 7th, 2022. And then I've got another one releasing in January, 2023. And then the third one will be releasing in May, 2023. And they are a continuation of this New York series. So they're books. So my publishers have said, look, you can keep going. So it's books four, five, and six. So they're continuing this idea of the first two in those new three books will have connections to France between sort of France and America. And this one that I'm just working on now is World War II and right in the thick of World War II. So that research has been completely different from the lovely fashion research. You know, it's harrowing and it's yes. it's dark. Yes, yes. But yeah. so much conflict. And I think this idea of What's great with historical fiction is taking your imagined characters and putting them in circumstances. This conflict is what drives story and conflict is what keeps readers turning the pages and wanting to know what's going to happen and this kind of idea of problem solving. And that's why we love reading because we travel with the character and they solve a problem and placing them in the context of that earlier 20th century, that hugely, that time of massive turmoil there's so many stories and I think the world was really changing and it was changing for women gradually starting, you know, to yes. emerge. Yes. So there is a lot. As you've been speaking, I wonder whether the chaos that we've been experiencing, I mean, even now most people you talk to feel as if the future is very uncertain. We don't quite know how things are going to be turning out another six months from now. Actually, that probably helps with the popularity of the world war fiction because they lived in a chaotic world too, didn't they? Look, absolutely. And when I was writing um, books, you know, it, and particularly with The New York Secret, when I was writing that just at the beginning of the pandemic, it was really interesting because it was the way that is very much about food in New York. And it was the, the way we came back to that simple kind of family and food and cooking. And do you remember when the pandemic started, everyone was making sourdough bread and everyone was going home and cooking? Yes. Yes, and yes. that was nurturing and that's what Lily sort of got her yeah. through the war, this love of cooking. And so I was seeing parallels. And while I think that what they went through, having this absolute fear that, you know, your fellow human beings might burst into your house and just slaughter you for absolutely no reason other than, that, you know, your, your nationality or whatever else or yes. your religion or your yeah. culture would be absolutely horrific and those, uh, what they went through and they were starving and it was just awful. But I do, you absolutely see parallels because our lives have been changed very dramatically and I think for young people, it's, it, and what's really interesting is, you know, it's the young generation. It's that generation that have lost that social connectivity and that was what happened during the war. My mother was actually, I'm, I'm a young, by far the youngest, so my parents actually went through World War II and so she was, mum was, you know, 18 when it broke out and she went and joined the Air Force and was in this Nissan hut in the middle of, you know, northern South Australia, right, for those that those formative years. And it just changed everything. And when I look at my daughter, who's had to do her entire university degree online, just sitting and, and what I loved about uni was meeting people and, they've, and that's been really sad. Yes. So I'm yes. hoping, and, you know, then after World War One, you had this amazing, the 1920s and this, well, which was short-lived, 
lip because the you know everything crashed, the market crashed in 1929. But they did have a period explosion of life. So it's going to be interesting to see if. But we we have this uncertainty. You're right. It's we don't know what the next variant might yeah. be. It's sort of 50 yeah. percent one way, and and we're living with that. So it's changed everything. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Look, we have come to the end of our time together. So tell me, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, absolutely. I have a lovely, a gorgeous group of readers on my Facebook, Ella Carey Author Facebook page. And I've got some absolutely wonderful long-term readers who've been with me since I indie published Paris Time Capsule back in 2014. And they're just so supportive and lovely. So I'm there. I have an Instagram page, just Ella Carey, again, Ella Carey author. I'm on Twitter. I will, I tend to interact with my fellow um, authors in my publishing house and we share and we'll promote each other's books. So if you're interested in reading some of my fellow authors' books who are published in the UK with Book of Chua, there's some fantastic binge reading there. They love its commercial fiction. It's, it's thrillers and historical fiction and women's fiction. And I have my website as well, my blog. So, yeah, I do. I really value that. It's lovely to have that that interaction. That's and you wonderful. see the familiar faces. And then you see new ones. And the, and the people coming in from when the translations come out in other countries, I'd see these lovely names coming from Germany or Norway or Sweden. And that's, that's really rewarding. Yeah, that's wonderful. We'll have all those links on the show notes that we publish with each episode. So people will be able to find them if they're, got any doubts about them that's wonderful Ella thank you so much for being with us today and it's been fascinating to hear your story thank you so much for having me Jenny next week on the joys of binge reading we have a change of pace Ella Sussman and her hilarious breakout rom-com funny you should ask a witty romance built around the whole dynamic of celebrity journalism Ten years ago, Charney interviewed Hollywood star Gabe, the next James Bond, and that story has haunted her career ever since. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be sure not to miss Elisa Sussman next week.